Hello and welcome to yet another episode of The Bigger Issue, TLDR News' successor podcast to Trust Issues. Um, we are now exactly a month into Sunak's premiership, so 31 days, 31 days has October. Um, and we're going to be taking a look at, at what's been happening to him in the last sort of week or so. Um, I'm joined today by, by Roy Taylor. Again, I don't know what your official title is, but you're the social media dude. Dude, guy, yeah. whatever you want to call sure. it. Technically coordinator, I think, but yeah. it's less, less fun. So Roy basically does all of our Twitter, Instagram, social media sort of shenanigans. Um, and well, it's very, very good and exceptionally well-informed, which is why we, we have him on today. <laughs> Thank you. It's definitely not because uh, no one else is available. Yeah, that's uh, also helped. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the first thing I think we're going to talk about um, is is the recent housing bill or the recent decision by Rishi Sunak to pull a much anticipated housing bill? So, mm. do you want to run us through what's happened there? Yeah, um, what it sort of says about the political status of Sunak's premiership? Yeah, it doesn't sound as you know that exciting when you say it's just a housing bill story, I didn't do a but good actually, job there. Uh, yeah. it is more exciting than it might sound. Um, there was due to be a vote at the start of next week in Parliament on the uh, Leveling Up Housing Bill. Um, which is a Michael Gove uh, brainchild. Um, Rishi Sunak has now pulled that vote. They're going to, you know, they've you know, kind of kicked it down the road. They'll do it in the future. And he's done that in the face of a potential rebellion amongst Tory backbenchers um, over things like housing targets and yep. also onshore wind. Um, so, you know, like you said, we're a month in now, and this is probably Sunak's first real um, legislative challenge, um, first possible rebellion. Um, so it kind of shows that you know, he had a pretty good first month in terms of authority when you compare it to like Liz Truss. Um, but now we're at the point where actually he is starting to have to, you know, pull the party together and try yeah. and get votes through Parliament. And he seems to be struggling on this one. There are two things that I find especially depressing about this story. Yeah. And the first is how repetitive it is. Like mm -hmm. we have this, this same story happens. Basically, it happened to Johnson, happened to Truss, happened yeah. to Sunak. They all try and increase house building and they all eventually back down in the face of rebellion from their own backbenchers. Yeah. Um, the other thing that makes it super depressing is just how amazingly acute the UK's housing crisis is and yet we still have political stasis on yeah. this issue. Like those, those two facts combined just make this such a crap story. I mean, it is astonishingly crap. Um, it's also sort of, it often reminds me of this, there's this Yanis Varoufakis anecdote, which I think is when he's talking to Wolfgang Schäuble, who was the German finance minister during the, the Troika negotiations. And at some point, it was either the German or the Dutch or the French finance minister. One of them just goes, you know, they're having an argument with Varoufakis, and he just goes, listen, I am the German finance minister. What else do you expect me to do? This is what I am. Yeah. And I feel like that's there's an equivalent here, which is now yeah. the Prime Minister because I am the Conservative Party leader. What else do you expect me to do? Like, I can't yeah. pass housing reform. I have to go through this charade of yeah. being like, oh, let's do 300,000 houses and then backing down at the slightest hint yeah. of pressure. Yeah. Um, Sorry, yeah. <laughs> there's not really a question no. there. <laughs> well, I was going to say, to be more specific about the actual um, uh, potential rebellion on housing, um, there was an amendment introduced to the uh, housing bill um, that would have scrapped uh, or that seeks to scrap uh, housing targets being enforced yeah. on local governments. Um, it would have made them advisory targets rather than mandatory targets. Um, and I think there was almost 50 Conservative MPs signed yeah. up to that amendment. Um, and, you know, those kind of numbers are pretty bad for the yeah. government when you consider their majority. Um, had they had the vote, that, that amendment wouldn't have passed because Labour wouldn't have supported it. But the key thing is that that 
amendment would have been defeated by the government with the support of the opposition. And that is a really bad look yeah. for the government when you so face they, a rebellion. So they backed down because of the optics almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, although they said they have pushed back the vote because of, uh, you know, parliamentary time. For you know, the next being full. conservative leader <laughs> to fail <laughs> yeah, on. another yeah. month. Yeah. Um, so they haven't actually said it's because of this rebellion, but, um, you know, that is yeah. the clear no, reason. No, I understand. Um, the other thing about this is I just think that actually, while it might make some short-term sense politically, mm. it's a terrible tactic in the long term. I mean, the the public is wising up to the, the severity of the housing yeah. crisis. And now it's not just renters who want to see a fall in house prices, or maybe not like a crash, but at least yeah. a slow decline in house prices relative to wages. It's also people who already own home, home houses. It's homeowners, even homeowners now. Um, I think there's some polling suggesting the majority of homeowners would, would appreciate a slight decline in house prices. But even homeowners would like to see a decline because they're worried about like their kids yeah. getting onto the housing market. Yeah. They're worried about you know how, how stamp duty affects their ability to move houses, all this sort of stuff. The housing market is just it's astonishing I mean, quite how broken it is. And I do think that in even in just the medium term, this will be a sort of form of political suicide mm. um, from the Tories. Uh, anyway, yeah, that, that just oddly, I mean, I don't really get very excited on these podcasts, yeah. but that really does slightly animate me. I mean, it's just it's just astonishing how how acute the housing crisis is, and every time I sort of read about it, it just becomes more and more depressing. Yeah, so I think we can assume, uh, given they've pushed this vote back, that the government will talk to these backbenchers who want to scrap the housing targets, and then make some concessions to make them back down. But, yeah. you know, I don't know if they will actually scrap those targets or if they'll just lower targets or do something to make it, you know, more palatable to those conservatives who don't want houses being built in their constituencies. Well, interesting, the last time this came out, so I think this was the trust government, the last time that, that we had, they had this battle between mm. essentially the government who wants to increase the number of houses being built um, and the backbenchers who just don't want any more houses being built because their sort of conservative base of homeowners will get yeah. very grumpy with them about it. Um, the trust government sort of found a compromise. I think, no, it was the Johnson government. Yeah. The Johnson government found a compromise in this new policy called the street votes policy, um, which is essentially about giving uh, the, the power to design houses, bringing that down to the street level. So mm. every street would essentially get a say on, on the parameters for any new housing. Um, and it's a great idea in theory, because obviously if you, if you get that local consent, you'll also get that local knowledge. So local people will, will know what will suit their house, their street best. Yeah. So you'll, you'll get a combination of local consent and also well-informed um, and sort of in keeping um, new housing. But yeah. um, so far they haven't really made much headway on that. I think Sunak's probably the, the most politically possible option for him would probably be to sort of push ahead with that yeah. and see how much progress they can get on that front. Yeah. Um, and his housing secretary is Michael Gove, who was Boris Johnson's housing secretary. Yeah. So you can assume there's that continuity That's there. a good point. That, um, we sound very well informed you, yeah. at this point. <laughs> that is rare. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can name some more names as well if yeah, you like. No, yeah. stop it. There's too much. <laughs> um, okay. So I think we've, we've covered housing. It's a miserable topic. Yeah. It's, this is sort of Groundhog Day of mm. Conservative Prime Ministers backing down the second their back bunches get grumpy. On to the second topic of today's big Rishi. Well, we could do a Groundhog Day on onshore wind, if you like, as well, because there's the amendment on that. Let's do a Groundhog yeah. Day on onshore wind then. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that was something that Liz Truss wanted to do. She wanted to lift the ban on onshore, the effective ban on onshore wind in England. Um, but obviously, she never got around to doing that. Uh, Rishi Sunak is keeping the this policy of stopping new onshore wind developments that kind of came in under David Cameron, I think. Yeah. Um, there's also a new amendment or a second amendment to this housing and levelling up bill that seeks to lift that onshore wind ban. Um, 
far less signatories than the uh, amendment we were just talking about on housing targets. But notably, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, yeah. former prime ministers, have are supporting this amendment. Um, what is that a political calculation by them, or are they just passionate about? Well, we've reversed short the interviewer interviewee <laughs> yeah. relationship here. This is very meta. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think that the political dynamics, so I, I don't think, I think there must be a political element to it. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that both Boris Johnson and Truss, especially Johnson, um, are at least conscious of the political impact it will have on Sunak's premiership and his ability to command unity in the party. But I do think that actually it's probably motivated by a genuinely a good faith interest in in renewable energy and growth yeah. in the UK. I mean, like it's, it's the political dyna dynamics, again, basically mirror the, the housing amendment yeah. dynamics in that, it's the sort of thing that really any sensible government would be going ahead with. I mean, there's, there's apart from the optics and the aesthetics, there's no reason to ban on or effectively ban onshore wind. Onshore yeah. wind is, is, in terms of net operating costs, one of the cheapest forms of electricity available. And, and we are quite a windy island. Um, so it really, really makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think the latest energy auctions do reliably put onshore wind as measured per kilowatt hour as the cheapest form of electricity for the UK. Um, and but again, the, the reason that Sunak is so wary of it is because that the NIMBYs and the conservative homeowners mm. and that fraction of the Tory voting base get very upset when you build big tall wind yeah. turbines near them and you know you kill their birds or whatever mm. they get head up about. But um, yeah, and, and yeah, and again, it's it's it, there's a it's just so depressing yeah. because it's so sensible, it's so eminently reasonable um, to invest in low cost renewable electricity especially a time of an energy crisis and also a form of electricity that once you get the turbines up in the ground is not susceptible to international pressure so it's mm -hmm. not like gas where the russians can threaten to cut it off it's it's not like oil where the saudis can threaten to cut production this does in some sense improve or at least get well guarantee or at least improve our energy security and our energy independence yeah. but obviously because some people don't like big fans in their backyard um, the toys are backing down on it. Sorry, I'm feeling a bit whingy yeah. at the moment. Yeah. I, I don't know. This sort of stuff, I don't know. This sort of stuff is, is just, I think it's quite black and white. I yeah. think there is a right and a wrong here. And the right thing to do is invest in onshore wind. But mm. anyway, sorry. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> it's a real no, I think it's, I think it's um, fair, yeah. Uh, sure. Um, but yeah, I do think what's interesting is just, it's just how perfectly the political dynamics mirror the house building thing. It's yeah. the exact same thing. Yeah. It's, it's something that makes preeminent economic sense, but will be pushed back because Sunak is afraid of offending a certain fraction of his base. And again, I don't think it's a good tactic in the political medium term mm. because, you know, once energy bills start going up, as they already have, your label will say, well, this could, this could be mitigated at least had we invested more heavily in onshore wind, yeah. which is very, very cheap, yeah. but you didn't do it because you don't like offending farmers. Mm. Um, anyway, that was a bit of a rant. Yeah, that's uh, that bill is one to watch when it eventually comes to a vote but um we'll see what kind of concessions they make i guess do you have any sense of the time frame for that no bit? idea i'm afraid <laughs> nice so we've gone from sounding quite informed yeah, back to, to our usual selves yeah <laughs> um okay uh the the last the is this gonna be the last section of this trust issue I, I, this big issue big issue i think so it's the last oh, issue. yet again sunak is oh hello oh hello do you want to yeah. come sit in for the last bit for migration or is that gonna be too much of a hassle uh, i can sit in that's fine 
So in the last section of the this week's Big Issue, we're going to be looking at immigration because it's something we've touched on in previous Big Issues, but yet again, Sunak is essentially struggling to control his backbenchers um, mm. when it comes to immigration. And some of them aren't very happy about the latest ONS figures, which suggests that net immigration to the UK, so that's including stuff like refugees and asylum seekers, uh, as well as foreign students, for example, has reached an all-time high of just over half a million. Yeah. So... I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which it's obvious why this is particularly difficult for Sunak, but do you want to just run us through why it's quite so difficult for him and why and what you think his prospects of essentially solving this issue yeah, are? Yeah, so for years, Conservative governments have had this goal of reducing uh, net migration. Um, some of them wanted to reduce it to the uh, tens of thousands. Others, I think, just wanted to have it, you know, reduce it. Um, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, is one of those who really wants to reduce mm. net migration into the UK. Um, and these latest figures, highest net migration on you know on record, uh, is the exact opposite of what she wants. Yeah. Um, so for the government, there's only so you know after 12 years of Conservative government, when you get to uh, an all-time high of net migration, you can't really say you know the system's not working. We need to fix it when you have been in charge for 12 years. You know, I think that's a difficult. Thing for them. I think the important thing to note as well is that the reason we that it's... Welcome, Ben. Thank well. you. Yeah, no, Ben's, Ben's making ben. a quick cameo. Just only very quickly. Um, I think the important thing to note as well <laughs> is that the reason that the figures are so high is because of a, a number of decisions that the government has made in the last year. So partly it's because of the Ukrainian refugee uh, scheme. So that, that's obviously increased numbers. There's been some more um, refugees come from Afghanistan as well. And the number of people leaving the UK as well is, is down, which has um, affected the overall figures. Mm. But... Um, as you say, it is still difficult. It is still a difficult thing for the government because, you know, they're trying to, especially with, as we were saying last time, the threat of Nigel Farage, they've been trying to show that they are the party of Brexit. They've enacted the, the wishes of, of Brexit, which is to try and bring migration down. And it's politically difficult for them now to accept that it's it's higher than it was pre-Brexit. It, yeah, it's interesting because it's difficult for them, but only because they want to bring migration yes. down. You have business leaders saying, uh, you know, we need immigration for growth at the moment. There's lots of uh, industries with severe job uh, shortages or worker shortages. Um, it's it's purely difficult for them because they they've got their own you know target effectively. Well, especially because even Liz Truss, who is you know very very right wing um, conservative, she was toying with the idea of trying to increase migration to try and fill some job roles in mm. her growth plan. You know, she was determined yeah. to do growth, and part of that was potentially through actually increasing. Um, migration despite her being like mrs brexit like she, her big thing was that she was um a, a big brexiteer so it's it's just very difficult for well, the government yeah to i mean trust trust didn't she report she supported remain in the yeah she did but, but post that she managed really, to uh, yeah. kind of yeah. she's very growth focused really and obviously yeah. one of the easy ways to sort of cheat on growth is to have massive immigration mm. because obviously even if your gdp per capita doesn't go up very high more people does just yeah. mean more gdp more economic activity um the last, so I was going to say, you were suggesting that it, some part of it is to do with conscious decisions made by the government. So policy decisions like to, you know, expand the Ukrainian refugee scheme, mm. taking some some more Afghans as and well. people from Hong Kong as well. Oh, Hong, Hong Kong, Kong, that was the other one. Yeah. one. yeah, I did mean um, to. But it, it is also a symptom of the inefficacy of government policy in other areas. So, for example, they still haven't, I mean, I don't really know what mean to get a handle on it. They still haven't really got a handle on the small boats crisis. So the number of small boats crossing is still increasing. Mm. I think we're above 40,000 for this year, mm. which is about double what it was last year. Obviously, there's a new deal between the UK and France. It was signed, what, last week, two mm. weeks ago? Yeah. Um, something like that. How much of a political threat 
do you think this is to the Tories? So obviously we talked about Farage. Um, the small boats specifically. The small boats specifically at the moment. I think I think it, it, it's at risk of being quite a large threat because as you say, Farage tries to make specific migration, but even more specifically than migration, small boats, one of his big things to try and attack the government for. And as we were saying on the last episode, he's really trying to lay into the government at the minute on, on a number of different things and almost trying to... Um, position himself to the right of the party so if they don't deal with the small boats thing he's going to try and take this issue as one that he can show that he he, he can solve um and as you said there's just no signs that the small boats thing's um, going to be fixed they did sign that deal with france a couple of weeks ago but it's still ambiguous as to what the deal actually means what what will actually happen with france there's been reports of obviously that the, the tragic incident last year of um, about 30 migrants drowning which was awful but there were reports um yesterday or a couple of days ago that france was basically uninterested in helping them there was very little cooperation between the french and the british the french had a lot of information they didn't give the british so there's there's not much cooperation between france and britain so even if they do start working um together a little bit more they're starting from a very low baseline of their the, the amount that they cooperate on issues like this so it's very difficult for the government to fix this and i think it is just quite there was quite a, a dangerous thing a really kind of uh, eye-opening moment in one of the select committee hearings this week with suela bravam and the home secretary and it kind of showed that the government's approach to the small boat crossings is, uh, you know, how do we make it harder for them to cross the channel rather than, you know, looking at the reasons why people want to cross the channel. So um, a Tory MP on that committee asked Suella Bravman, uh, you know, he said, if I was hypothetically a uh, African, a man from an African country who... Uh, he was like, a 16-year-old African yeah. orphan. Mm, yeah, it's very from, specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah suffering um, from political oppression. Yes, yeah. um, from a... Uh, unnamed African country, yeah. I think, um, who wanted to come to the UK because you had a sibling already in the UK. What is, he asked her, what is the safe and legal route for yeah. that that teenager to do that? Um, and she didn't have an answer because there isn't really a safe and legal route. From certain countries, there are, um, you know, Afghanistan, Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine. 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 But um, she didn't have an answer beyond saying, uh, well, if, if that person makes it to the UK, they can then claim asylum. And he pushed her on that and said, well, then he has to get to the UK to claim asylum. And if there aren't any safe and legal routes, you know, you cross the channel mm. to get to the UK. Um, and she she didn't have an answer to it. Um, so that kind of sums up the government's, uh, uh, you know, approach to the this small boats crisis. Yeah, absolutely. In, not looking at the wider reasons why people actually are trying to come to the UK and how they're trying to come to the UK. They're just looking at, you know, stopping people on the beaches of France from actually making making the journey. So in your two answers that you've sort of articulated both the political reasons that the Conservatives are pursuing such a, at least rhetorically, such a harsh line of immigration, mm. you know, they're scared of Farage, mm. they've got to play to a certain fraction of their base, but also the political risks, which is that you're, you're right, there is a sense in which um, the government's current immigration policy is at least not well thought through, it's at least not um, comprehensive, yeah. yeah, and it risks looking a bit cruel. So what do you think, the, the essentially, do you think this is a politically savvy decision to be so rhetorically tough on immigration? Do you know, it's obviously something that might have worked quite well for them in the past. I mean, immigration was top of voters' priorities back in sort of 2015, around Brexit especially. Mm. Um, but do you think that they run, they run the risk of essentially looking a bit cruel here and, and they, they could end up? slightly toxifying the brand, you know, looking like the nasty Tories, which is something that David Cameron was was so keen to avoid. I, I absolutely agree that it, it does run that risk. I think that their thought process is that you've got a right-wing contingent of the Conservative Party who want stricter um, migration rules um, and asylum rules, um, and they're playing to that base. I think that they're seeing the threat of Farage and they're trying to, to 
match him on that. Um, and yeah, I think they're looking more at trying to unify the party than trying to appeal to sort of the centre ground. Roy? Yeah. What was the question? So, <laughs> do you think this is obviously they've they've decided to at least be in rhetorical terms oh, take that yeah. tough line? Yeah. On, was it not a clear question on migration? No, no, it, no. It was, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I just got lost in Ben's answer. That's, yeah. that's what it was. <laughs> um, I guess that the risk is is this really tough rhetoric on on immigration, but not actually following through on it is kind of unappealing to everyone because it's unappealing to the people mm. who, you know celebrate migration and people who want a more humane kind of approach to the small boats crisis um it alienates those people significantly um but then by failing to actually reduce numbers they're annoying the people they're trying to get the support of um so it's kind of a losing strategy on both sides i think mm. um but you know if you look at labor keir starmer has you know he's attacking the government on their failure to meet their own goals on immigration and to tackle the small boats crisis um he hasn't you know he i think i think labor say their approach is sorry labor say the government's approach is inhumane ineffective and expensive or something so they're going kind of on every side they're saying it's failing basically but starmer has also implied i think in this context it is worth mentioning that starmer has also implied that the labor would want to bring my net migration down as yeah. well He's, he said that there will be some difference between his policy and the tories but in terms of broad objectives they're, mm. they're quite similar which is Interesting, because you, like you said, Ben, you've got the Tories trying to kind of stop people going to Farage, and now you've got Starmer trying to kind of sweep up those Tories who do want to bring migration yeah. down but don't want to sound cruel about it, yeah. I guess. I think that the entire British political class has inferred too much from the experience of essentially the the early 2010s, yeah. you know, especially in the, the years leading up to Brexit, where voters' concerns about immigration reached a new peak. Um, especially largely driven by the fact that there was a very high EU immigration, mm. especially from Eastern European countries. Um, and that sort of peak coincided with the Brexit vote. But since then, people are less concerned um, with immigration. And actually, voters' attitudes to immigration have improved. There yeah. are mm. more people who are open to immigration. And while it's probably still true to say that a majority of Brits, or at least a plurality, want strict controls on immigration, I think what the political parties are missing is that at the moment swing voters are generally yeah. a lot more open um, to immigration. Uh, I also think the other interesting thing is just that, that particular experience in the early 2010s is really idiosyncratic for various reasons. I mean, like that particular spike in immigration, well, no one really knows the, like the total causal explanation for it. But it was it was at least in part because at the time when the UK was in the EU, um, we were obviously in the same single market, this the same freedom of movement zone. You can go if you want, by the way. No, I'll go in a second. Um, but uh, we had two separate monetary systems. And then in response to what was a slight hike in oil prices, the ECB decided to raise rates. Um, and that just slowed down the European economy. But the um, Bank of England decided to keep rates the same. So that meant that essentially the UK became this sort of driver of growth in, in Europe and it attracted a whole load of European migration. Mm. But that was a very, very specific circumstance. And obviously we don't have freedom of movement anymore. So there aren't those sort of pressures on the labor market. Um, and also the, the Bank of England and the ECB are much more in lockstep than, than they once were. So I just think that I, I both, essentially both labor and the conservatives have over inferred from what was a very specific yeah. situation in, in the early 2010s. Um, the last thing, the very last thing we're going to talk about um, <laughs> is that there have been reports in today's papers that the way that the government, one of the ways that the government is going to try and bring down this, this apparently politically embarrassing net immigration figure 
is by banning foreign students into UK universities. So mm. anyone want to have a hot take? I'm going to get going. Yeah. Okay, Ben's going to get going. Can have a, sure. You can have a hot take, I'm sure. sure. Um, Sorry, I'll slowly slow part. Yeah. <laughs> Cut this bit. So the reason why foreign students, uh, are, you know, being seen as a possible uh, plan by the government or like cracking, you saying cracking down on foreign students is ridiculous, yeah. actually, isn't it? It's, uh, sorry, reducing the numbers of foreign students. Uh, the reason why the government might be thinking about that is because um, the ONS said with these latest migration figures, one of the drivers was um, uh, international students coming to the UK after a relative period of um, lower immigration because of the pandemic. So we've got more foreign students coming in now than in the last few years. Um, so by saying we'll take less foreign students, they can get that number down. Yeah. Um, I think in the papers uh, they said, you know, it wouldn't be a total ban. It would be something like only allowing foreign students coming in to study certain degrees, probably STEM and medicine and those types of things. Um, but uh, yeah, we should say this is reports in papers rather than official government policy, but sure. we're talking about. But let's treat it as if it were yeah, government policy, just, just so we can have a go at the government. Um, it, it, I think whatever you think these sort of intrinsic merits of this policy are, it is it's worth mentioning the economic context in which it occurs. You know, mm. and by that, what I'm referring to is the fact that many UK universities rely very, very heavily on foreign student fees to, to fund them. And also many uni UK universities are quite heavily over leveraged. You know, they have got quite a lot of debt. Mm. And you see this every time the government considers changing the tuition fee system because the universities get really het up and they say, basically, we can't afford this. You know, yeah. We are already uh, sort of on the... We're financially, we're already struggling and we can't afford reforms to the tuition fee system. So, for example, uh, UCL, again, I should say in the interest of uh, transparency, I am just reading this off um, a table. I don't actually know these figures off the top of my head. I'm doing this sort of Roy Stewart equivalent. Mm. Um, UCL earns basically three times as much from non-EU fees as it does from UK fees. So that's the rest of the world. That's sort of in all foreign students combined. Um and a lot of other very prestigious universities receive a majority of their funding, or at least a majority of their fee funding um, from international students. For example, that, that includes Edinburgh, King's, um, Imperial, it even includes Oxford um, and Cambridge. So all of those places receive more of their funding mm. from international students than they do from UK students. Um, and so even if you think this policy is sort of sensible insofar as you think that maybe we should be prioritizing domestic students or or maybe you worry about the sort of distortionary effects on the labor market of international students um in the context in, in well just taking account of the fact that a lots of universities especially prestigious ones are over leveraged and very very dependent on foreign student fees it would be a very chaotic policy to it would, it would cripple those universities it would cripple those universities <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um and that's one of the few things that the uk still does well God, yeah. it sounds miserable to say <laughs> but it is one of the few things the uk yeah. still does well so probably not the most sensible no. policy especially not in the long term if you're the, worried about growth yeah there was a few years ago i remember there was talks about whether the government should include or not include foreign students in their migration figures um and some people wanted to just take out foreign students from those figures because well they're kind of a separate group from yeah. people who move here long term um if so is it plausible i'm asking you this i don't know if you know the answer but is it plausible if the government wanted to bring net migration down they could just not include foreign students in the migration figures 
I have absolutely no idea, but yeah. I'm going to go with a very confident yes. I feel <laughs> okay. like that's a good policy. Yeah. If Rishi Sunak, if you're listening, do, do that. That, that yeah. makes more sense. Yeah. Um, um, I wanted to read something from the Oxford Migration Observatory, if that's okay. Just it feels quite a like good a prayer quote. at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is this is Oxford University's Migration Observatory. Um, they said. These unusually high levels of net migration result from a unique set of circumstances following the war in Ukraine and the recovery from the COVID-19 crisis. We cannot assume that they represent a new normal and it would be rash to take major policy decisions based only on these numbers. So mm. when you consider that and then look at the papers today and see yeah. we're going to ban foreign students to bring down migration figures, it kind of seems like a... Yeah, you're reminded of how idea. disappointingly reactionary yeah. UK politics yeah. is. I, I sort of agree with that. I do think there's also a sense then, which at least in the sort of in, in the medium term, in five, ten years, um, most serious analysts predict that climate change will lead to, to a massive spike in intracontinental mm. um, migration. And sure, while this might be you know a one-off this decade, maybe let's say. Uh, it is worth, well, the UK does essentially have to get its migration system in order if it wants to be able to cope with the increased numbers of migration that most people think will result as a consequence of climate change. Um, so, yeah, yeah, another gloomy note to end on. Um, do you want to go anything more you want to anything say? Anything positive? Anything positive? Should we try and find something positive? Um, yeah, I've got nothing positive. No, there must no, be something yeah. positive. Quite depressingly, we were trying to think of something positive, uh, but nothing that didn't feel trite came to mind. Um, so we are just going to say goodbye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Episode? Uh, episode? Uh, <laughs> no. Ah, keep it all in. No, don't you dare keep it in. Um, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Big Issue. Uh, it was hosted by me, Zach Michaelis, TRDR's editor-in-chief, and I was joined by Roy Taylor, yes. our social media contributor, and very briefly... Ben Blissett, who is TLDR UK's lead writer. The podcast was produced by Jan Adamich over in the corner. Thank you very much, Jan. Um, and I think that is everyone who deserves credit, isn't Someone it? Someone will edit it, but we don't know who. Maybe edited by Scarlet Watchhorn. So, well, thank you to everyone. There yeah. we go. Great episode. Nice. Yeah. That is going to be a nightmare to edit. <laughs> yeah. That ending and also Ben coming in.